0: Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Okay. Well, here we are. Back in Ephesians. I know you're not even remotely tired of it. We might go back through and do it again. Who knows? Maybe next year we just do the whole thing over again. Listen, it's been almost a full year, about 10 months total, uh, 9 months total, uh, in the book of Ephesians. We have been walking through this incredible, rich and dense New Testament book of the Bible. It's uh, a book that was originally a letter that the great, famous Apostle Paul penned with this pastor's heart to a young church like ours In the region of modern-day Turkey, or Ephesus, um, I have an opportunity that's still up in the air we're going to see praying about it, but I may actually be going to Ephesus next year, which is totally of the Lord, open door. Someone reached out and said, hey, we're taking pastors on this trip to Ephesus. You get to learn about the whole place. You know, if you ever teach through the book of Ephesians, I'm like, well, I just finished, but okay. Um, So it'll be nice to go. See if the Lord opens that door and be a part of that. But Ephesians is uh, just really such a rich book. And we've talked about this. There's two words. You guys should be basically helping me teach this part by now, right? So there's two words that Paul really wants to get into our heart. What's that two-word phrase? In Christ. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, This two-word phrase sums up the whole of what Paul is trying to communicate. He wants us to truly be rooted in and blown away by and to live from the reality of our position now in Jesus. Like that's one way to think about what the Christian message is all about. The Christian message is about God taking people and placing them in a new spot in Jesus Christ and all the implications that come through that. Uh and so that's what we've been looking at here at the end of Ephesians chapter 6, we're looking at a unique aspect of being in Christ. Most of the stuff up to this point has been rather encouraging, you know? I mean, this is encouraging, too. It's going to be. But most of the time, it's like love in Christ and walking in Christ and unity in Christ. But here we are in chapter 6, and we're talking about, you know, warfare in Christ. Warfare in Christ. Notice there, part four of many. Now, this is a unique and rather famous passage of scripture where Paul steps back, really as far as you can go, to look at the greatest or greater context—not just of the Christian life, but as of the cosmos as a whole. We read chapters ten or chap- uh, verses six, uh, ten, excuse me, through thirteen here, where Paul gives the context of what he describes as the spiritual battle. With spiritual forces. Like, this is the Bible teaching us this that there's more to life than what meets the eye. There's more to your trials and your temptations and your depression and your struggle. There's more going on than what we see. There's spiritual ramifications to life. There's spiritual forces, not just vague forces, real, organized, fallen, powerful forces that are centered around the works of, as it's named there, an individual called the devil. Good morning, right? Um, This is what Paul has been walking us through, a study on the idea of warfare, the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. And as followers of Jesus, we find ourselves on the front lines of this battle, that we have in some ways a target on our backs as we set out to live for the things of God. It makes us uh, an enemy uh, to the enemy. So uh, in this passage, what's amazing is Paul is describing Not just the doom and gloom and the terror of, like, you're in this dark spiritual battle. That is not where he wants our minds to go. He wants us to be thinking about the victory we have in and through Jesus. Someone say, amen. A little bit better. Someone say, amen. Amen. Okay, like you mean it, all right? Like, Paul wants us to be thinking about the victory we have in and through Jesus through his provided means of defense. Uh, This is what it means to be in Jesus. Yeah, you're in a battle, but you're on the winning side. Yeah. You're on the side of victory. You're on the side of Jesus. The Bible says, if God is for you, who can be against you? So this is good news here in Ephesians 6. Uh, Paul is using this really interesting metaphor for us to, like, if you, if you know what it's like to be under attack, you can now move to a place of confidence and rest that the attacks, the weapons formed against you, don't have to prosper because of the provided protection God has given you. And Paul is using this really interesting metaphor to describe how we should be waging war, like how we're to be strong in the Lord in the fight. And it's this metaphor he uses called the armor of God. He's like, report for duty, put on your armor, get suited up, and specifically, notice this, put on the whole armor of God. Make sure head to toe, you're covered in every defense that God has provided for you in the battle. Now, what is the armor of God? Paul goes on to describe it there. I want you to understand first, Paul is writing this from a prison cell. He's on some first century version of house arrest is what we'll say. There's no ankle monitor. There's actually Roman soldiers next to him, chained to him. Like, so you had a bad day. That's Paul's life, bro chained to these Roman soldiers, writing this letter of, thinking about others in his hardship. And I imagine as Paul is writing this epistle and he's thinking about the spiritual battle Christians are and he just looks over at that Roman soldier and he's like, I'm so glad you're here. You just gave me sermon content, you know? And Paul begins to describe through the armor of a Roman soldier, this metaphor through those different pieces of the armor for how God has equipped us to be protected, to identify and to stand against the schemes of the devil. And what's interesting about each piece of the armor, as we said, is each piece represents a defense. And simultaneously, each piece of the armor gives us insight to how the enemy comes at the people of God. So last week, we talked about the belt of truth. Gird up them loins. Paul talks about the belt of truth that holds everything together. The insight there is the enemy comes at us with lies. This morning... As we make our way there to verse 14, we're looking at the second piece of God's provided defenses in the spiritual battles we find ourselves in. In the the battle, whether or not you are fighting and recognize it, the battle you are in. And it's the second part here. Paul says, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. Truth holds everything together. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Here we are this morning now talking about the breastplate of righteousness of righteousness. If you and I are going to stand against schemes that we can't even imagine coming our way, we must be armed with the breastplate of righteousness. Now, maybe I just lost half of the room because the word righteousness is one of those like tune out. It tends to be one of those tune out Bible words. If you've been in church long enough, you just kind of righteousness, okay, it just kind of rolls off the top of the head very fast. Um But this is, though it's a biblical word, a very Bible word, it's an incredibly important word. It's actually, it surely is a Bible word. It's used 540 times in Scripture. A plain reading of the Bible will lead you to conclude, whatever righteousness is, it matters to God. Whatever it is. It matters to him. It's a theme. It's actually used in the Bible more than words like faithfulness, which we would think is a big, important word. Righteousness is used over and over again. Let's talk about this word because we see here that God has provided that as a defense for us in the battle in the form of a breastplate. We'll get there too. But let's just start by unpacking this word that Paul uses, righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness is one of our defenses. This is a moral word, and it's very center. Uh, When we think about righteousness, we're thinking about moral things, things that have to do with moral quality, things that have to do with uh, moral reality. This is a word that correlates to moral things. Let me give you kind of three contexts that you see righteousness interacting in the world of morality. In the Bible, you see righteousness described of first moral actions. So there's such a thing as someone's actions being either righteous, morally right, or unrighteous morally wrong or we would say immoral Uh, another example of righteousness in the bible is it's used of judgment jesus says that we are to have when we when we use our by the way jesus doesn't say don't use judgment do we know this jesus said don't judge don't just turn your brain off and don't ever use judgment no he doesn't say that he says don't condemn others don't damn others to hell when the gospel message is a word of grace and invitation that we need ourselves Jesus says, like, you need judgment. How else are you going to beware of false prophets if I don't judge, bro? You got to judge. The key is, Jesus said, is that you would use what kind? Righteous judgment. Let your, you, ever, you, ever, you ever settled for your own snap judgment and found out after the fact that wasn't a righteous judgment? You got to know the person, you're like, they're not so bad. They get to know you, they're like, They're okay, all right? So righteousness has to do with the world of moral actions, has to do with moral judgment. One more word on moral judgment. One of the ways that God indicts humanity in Scripture is he often calls them out. One of the the most destructive sins is not just that people have have immoral actions, but they have immoral judgments about what's right and wrong. This is so important. That's called unrighteous judgment. The way it says in Isaiah is that God looks on at the people and they're calling evil good and they're calling good evil. They're calling darkness light and they're calling light darkness. That's called a broken society that's an unrighteousness. It's unrighteous judgment. And then lastly, when, when the Bible talks about righteousness, it's talking about moral standing. Now, to kind of tie this all together with this last one, the idea of morality is often uh, intertwined with the concept of the courtroom a lot. Well, because that's what the courtroom exists to do. it exists to to weigh out justice and righteousness, and if something was done if it was if it, if, it, if the punishment is fair, if it's just or not, if it's righteous or not and the last place that that this all finds itself in is is righteousness finds its place in the realm of moral standing. Think about you know you have the actions outside the courtroom are those righteous or not? You have the judge that's judging hopefully with righteous judgment, and then you have. The individual there standing before the judge, and the question is, are they righteous? You follow me? All right? So, this is righteousness in the Bible. It has to do with actions, it has to do with judgment, it has to do with your standing. So, a big question the Bible will ask is, is what is your standing as a moral agent before God? What's your standing? something the Bible deals with a lot. What is the standing of humanity? What's the standing of, of an individual? What's the standing of a Christian? It's a big topic in the Bible in terms of their moral standing before God. Now, I'm just kind of wetting your palate here. We're going we're gonna to go deeper into this, this stuff. But this is an introductory idea about righteousness. A moral word, world dealing with these three main arenas, courtroom concept. All of these ideas find, this is huge with righteousness, when it comes to righteousness, all of these ideas in, in, in the Bible find their ultimate fulfillment in the person and character of God. God is the supreme source of anything righteous. This is why the Proverbs say, in, or rather, sorry, I think it's the Psalm. Psalm eleven seven says, the Lord is righteous. Who he is is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Um, this is a central understanding. If we're, we're trying to find out what's righteous, we look to God. He, he's the source of it. He's the perfect standard of righteous actions. He's the perfect standard of righteous judgment. God has never made a flawed, faulty, snap judgment about anything he's ever decided on. You could trust him for that. That's hard sometimes to reconcile when life is so unrighteous. This is, this is just theology about what the Bible reveals about the character of God. And, he is the ultimate judge that we stand against, or stand rather before. In righteousness, uh, this is why my favorite uh, theologian—I have, a, you know—we all have our favorite theologians, don't we? Right? My favorite little theologian is—that's weird—I'm gonna move on. My favorite theologian is a guy named Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem has, has written most popularly the 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 the. Um, The work Systematic Theology, he wrote a Christian belief smaller version. There's different uh, degrees and and some are more extended than others. But in Systematic Theology, Wayne Grudem describes righteousness this way. Righteousness, he says, is the doctrine that God always acts in accordance with what is right. And I love that. I love that. I'm not not even halfway through the quote yet and I'm already cutting him off. But I am halfway through the quote and I am cutting him off, actually. Um, I love that what, what Wayne Grudem says here is that, and I'll finish it, is that God is also the final standard of what is right. So it's not like you measure God to some standard of righteousness. You measure righteousness to the standard of God. So that's what he's saying here. Here's the doctrine of righteousness. Everything that which is right finds its fulfillment in accordance with who God is. And that's like the theme of the scripture. I even think that is where Paul, here in Ephesians 6 now, let's come back to Ephesians. I'm about to be in Isaiah for a second, but you don't know that. In Ephesians 6, as Paul is talking about now the Christian who is to put on the breastplate of righteousness, I believe Paul is looking at the Roman soldier, but we know Paul knows his Bible, especially his Old Testament. And Paul, in describing the breastplate of righteousness, is actually pulling from Hebrew poetry. He's pulling from Isaiah's words in Isaiah 59, where this idea of God being the standard of righteousness is described in contrast with the conditions of the world so we're kind of saying this idea that like if you want to see righteousness look at God and you could also say if you want to see the opposite you could look at the world sort of what if, what Isaiah says here's what it says Isaiah is speaking on behalf of the the Hebrew people he's saying for our transgressions he's talking to God are multiplied before you And our, notice this this language here, our sins testify against us. By the way, do you see the courtroom language here? They're testifying against us. For our transgressions are with us. As for our iniquities, we know them in transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt. Here's what's happening in the nation of Israel at this time conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood notice this justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off they're looking around and righteousness and justice is nowhere to be found in any form in judgment in action in standing for truth look at this language again is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter so truth fails and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey then the this is awesome look at this then the lord saw it and it says this it displeased him that literally could be translated it was evil in his sight how is god operating here as the righteous what judge he's using judgment he's looking on he's going that's wrong he saw that there was no justice he saw as he looks from heaven to the earth, he sees that there's no man. Where are the righteous ones? And he wondered that there was no intercessor. Where are the people that God raises up to stand in the gap between him and his creation? There's nowhere, no one to be found. He wondered that there was no intercession. Therefore, this is, this is amazing. God's like, all right, if nobody's gonna do it, I'm gonna do it myself. This is God. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation. Like he's waiting for man to pull it together and do the righteousness thing themselves. And he looks on, he's like, no one to be found. I'll have to do the job myself. I'll have to step in. And in his own righteousness, it sustained him. And what did he do? He put on righteousness as a breastplate. This is God going to war. He put on a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he was clad with zeal as a cloak. It's powerful. There's a message in this. Certainly the message is that God is there to respond when no one else is. When things look wrong, you could trust that God is right. But the ultimate message is just that, to look to him as the source of righteousness. When everything is going wrong, look to God who's always right. Look to him, trust in him, expect him, see him as the standard of rightness, of righteousness. That's the message of Isaiah. That God alone is righteous. He's the one standing out with this quality. But going back here again to Ephesians. Interesting then that here in Ephesians... Well, Paul is saying to us, I mean, this is not written to us, but it's written for us. We're followers of Jesus. Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And in fact, Paul says that it's given for our instruction in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 3.17. That God has actually given us his word so that we can be instructed in what's often the foreign way of rightness, of Righteousness. Um, And here in Ephesians 6, Paul is actually implying something more than that, that not only has God pointed the way to righteousness, but remember, here in Ephesians, the point is this, that God has provided righteousness. Let me say that all over again. The point here of Ephesians is not just that God has pointed the way for righteousness, but that God has provided his righteousness upon and for us. Okay, this is what Paul is saying. Now, here is a great question that I know you're asking right now, so I'll just put it up on the screen, okay? How, Andrew, has God provided this righteousness for his people? I mean, Paul's all like, hey, we got to take the things that God is. This is our armory. We don't go into war after, you know, leaving the gym all buff and tough in our own stuff. Bars right there. Okay. We don't go to war in our own confidence, with our own smarts, our own tactics. The only way to be victory in the spiritual battle is to receive the strength. It's to put on the armor of God. It's to employ the protection that God has provided. So that's what Paul's saying, all right? We're not the source of truth. He is, he's given us his truth. Thank you, God. We don't have to be defeated by lies. And now Paul is building on that. He's like, now God has also given you righteousness. He's gifted you, provided for you righteousness. Now, how has God done this? My answer to this question is something called the book of Romans. When's the last time you read the book of Romans, man? I read it this morning, obviously. Um, Hopefully, right? I'm going to talk about it. And I'll tell you what, studying for today, exploring this, spending time with God, seeing what he's saying here. I was like, man, it's been too long since I read the book of Romans, I make my way usually through the New Testament epistles, usually an Old Testament book, a New Testament book, and always living in the Psalms and Proverbs. Proverb a day keeps the devil away, as they say. That's not true. That's actually, I'm teaching on spiritual warfare, and I just taught you a lie about spiritual warfare. (laughs) That doesn't work. Okay. I got to reading the book of Romans again recently, and I was... I feel like fortified in a fresh way. I feel like the book of Romans put Holy Spirit strength in my spine. Remembering how God has provided for me in righteousness all that I needed that I could have never attained on my own. This is Romans. Like if right now you're like, I haven't read the book of Romans in a while. Boom, homework, read the book of Romans. And uh, man, I gotta tell you, to talk about how God has provided righteousness for his people (laughs) Uh, in the book of Romans, could take five years. Like if Ephesians is is six chapters, we're into the year, Romans, I don't know, 16 chapters, that's at least five years. I could do, even even just summarizing the book of Romans and how God has provided righteousness, I was prepared to do a lot here. I want to tell you that God is growing me as a communicator. I want, I want to just help you know that. And he's growing me in the ability to delete things from my notes. I just hope you know that. That's like the thing he's strengthening me to do. Uh, you know me, I just want to say everything about everything. And so the Lord is, because I just want you to know truth and be encouraged by it. And so um, I, had, <laughs> I had a whole Bible study prepared, literally going almost section by section through the whole book of Romans, presenting section by section how God has provided righteousness for us. And uh, by the grace of God, I've trimmed that back. I pray one day the Lord leads us through the book of Romans. So here's what I've done. This took tremendous self-control. I just broke it up into one slide for you. Okay, here you go. Oh, you don't know how bad I want to go through these verses and these chapters. Okay. Last night, Brittany's like, what are you teaching? I'm like, I'm pretty much like walking through the book of Romans. And she's like, you're in Ephesians. I'm like, You're right. Okay. Um, so here, Romans, again, the book of Romans summarized All the ways that God has provided righteousness for those who are in Christ. All the ways that God has taken his righteousness that he wears like a breastplate. That speaks of his character. It's of him. It's not of us. It's all the ways that God has taken what's true about him and made it true about us. That's awesome. That's good news. That something that's not true about me through God can become true about me. That's the good news of the gospel. Romans lays it out into two parts. Chapters 1 through 5, it's more than eight chapters, but the righteousness section is really there, chapters 1 through 8. Chapters 1 through 5 of Romans describes how God has provided, get this, imputed righteousness through the gospel. Imputed righteousness through the gospel. Chapters 6 through 8 talks about how God has provided empowered righteousness in our lives through the Spirit. So this is the big idea of Romans. First, chapters 1 through 5. Let me summarize it for you. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, the message, the announcement of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of the message of Jesus, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone and anyone who believes, from the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith the just shall live by faith this is paul's thesis of his book paul's like i'm in prison right now everyone else is ashamed of me i'm being humiliated but i will never shut up about jesus i am not ashamed of him and what he's if he wasn't ashamed of me how could i ever be ashamed of him And to boldly say, my goodness, I'm not ashamed of his message, the good news of what Jesus came to do, not just teach a few things and heal a few people, but ultimately to go to a cross to accomplish something for humanity. And and then then to defeat death and rise from the grave. Paul's like, I'm not ashamed of the message of Christ. For it's the power of God. It's, It's the one way that God has provided for mankind to be powerfully saved and to be made righteous. He says, in the gospel, Paul says, the righteousness of God is revealed. And and then Paul will do this really incredible work that law schools historically would study, Romans 1 through 3, in order to present an argument, to make their case. Romans 1 through 3 was studied. Here's, Here's lawyer Paul here. And in Romans 1 through 3, Paul is like calling all of humanity to the stand before God. He starts with the gentiles and he's like yeah y'all are y'all are all messed up like you got it all wrong and he says you know the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men like paul looks onto the landscape of humanity he's like it's not it's not looking good for you guys when you come to stand before god here's the problem unrighteous actions therefore unrighteous standing biggest problem there he's a righteous god I mean, he's who we want him to be, fair and just. The problem is we all want justice until it's levied toward us, right? We want God to get them. We don't want him to get us. That's the predicament we're in as sinners, as those that have fallen short of his glory, as those who have committed offenses and sins and crimes against a holy, eternal God. None of us could ever fathom the weight of that on our own and so Paul's like helping people get this like it's not good and sin's not like oh you know stole a cookie from the cookie jar who did it you know it's like sin is not a minor offense so he starts calling out the pagans the the non-jews the gentiles for all their sins and their 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 fallenness and then it's almost like Paul imagines that his Jewish brothers and sisters are next to him like yeah Paul preach at them. Amen, Paul. They're sinners. And Paul's like, hold up. And he says in chapter two, you who condemn another and practice the same things they're doing, do you think like for some reason that you're just special and you get off the hook? You have the law, therefore you're guiltless before God. Paul's like, no, remember what the law has showed you. It's how much you fall short of the standard of God. And Paul will build this all up in chapter three to say, I have charged both Jews and Greeks, pagans and church folk, suburbans and South Beachians. Whoever you are, Paul will say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have fallen short. And then he'll say, to the extent that no amount of rule-keeping can justify us. As we stand before God, we all equally stand before him as those who have sinned against him and are worthy of his righteous judgment with no ability to fix that on our own. It's like you're stranded in the middle of a hurricane in the ocean. Swim lessons aren't going to help you, right? You need to be Rescued. You need a divine mediator to step in and save the day. This is the gospel. Summarized in one verse is Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 who says that God made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's so the gospel in a verse, the atonement in a verse, the great exchange, as John Corson called it, the great switcheroo in one scripture. The good news that God in his justice is also loving he's also gracious he's also kind and merciful and he doesn't punish us as our sins deserve but in his justice he lays his own life down taking upon himself our guilt Jesus goes to the cross as Pilate said I find no fault in him he's innocent he's the the lamb of God the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world because he takes the sin upon himself So that you and I, listen, through our trust in that, through our faith alone in that, not faith plus go to church, not faith plus read your Bible, not faith plus don't do those things, not faith plus do these things, not faith plus works, but sola fide, through faith alone in trusting in Christ, Paul will say, as you look at Abraham, you see the righteousness of God is credited to my account. These are funds we didn't work for, but that Jesus worked for and you and I get to come before God, we start in our sin, but through faith in Jesus, Jesus gifts us his righteousness. He satisfies the righteous requirements so that God is both, Paul will say, the just and justifier of the one who believes. You still with me? All right, well, let's just slip in an A.W. Tozer quote here to, to pin it all together. Tozer says, I love this, the only sin that Jesus ever had was ours. And the only righteousness that we can ever have is His. The man who does not work, the one upon whom God justifies, God justifies even the ungodly. That's us. Justified, it's been summarized as just as if I'd never even sinned. When God sees you, if you're in Christ, he sees his son. He doesn't see your unrighteousness. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Anyone thankful for that this morning? Be thankful that as you come before God, he sees his son on you. His righteousness. There's a deficiency of confidence in the church today of Christians that know they're the righteousness of God in him beat down by shame and regret and self-pity, puffed up and, you know, the only faulty version of this is called self-righteousness. Where you just, all self-righteousness, it's been described as like spraying perfume in a dumpster. Trying to beautify a corpse. What a waste of time, right? Right? What a waste of time pretending who we're not when we get to be who we are. Righteous in Jesus. I don't, have to, I don't have to pretend. I know I'm messed up. You are too. But when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless. Faultless stand before his throne. Now what's amazing about Paul is Paul is going to allow that truth to move us into a new life. In Romans, he's not just going to say that we've been justified, but he also is going to say you're being sanctified as well. So, so through Jesus, what's happened is not only is your sin washed away, the penalty of sin, but in Jesus, you're also called to a life where the power of sin begins to wash away as well a lot of us stop in Romans chapter 5 to be honest Or we stop somewhere in Romans 7 where it's like oh the things I hate to do I do you know well good thing I'm the righteousness of God in him I could just you know I'm just going to sin the rest of my life because it's true about me here on the flesh but in the spirit I'm righteous and so I guess I'll just live under the law of sin and death and uh though Romans 7 encourages us because you got people like Paul who are like, I sin all the time and I can't stop doing it. You're like, okay, good. But a lot of times we can live in Romans 7. We can live in the excuse of the flesh. We can live, listen, we can live in patterns of unrighteousness that God has set us free from. Because He, who the Son sets free is free indeed. So we can we can sort of just live in Romans 1 through 5, where we see that there's imputed righteousness through the gospel. But chapter 6 in Romans, like I said, I'm not going to summarize the whole book to you today. But in chapter 6, Paul asks this incredible question. After making this great case about the final truth of who you are in Jesus and through his work on the cross, you're now righteous before him. Paul will then say in chapter 6, so, you know, the law abounded, sin abounded, grace abounded, much more. This is all good news. But Paul goes, let me ask you a question. He goes, shall we continue in sin because grace is going to abound? Paul's like, how could you think that way? That's a limited view of the gospel. That's a view of the gospel that's, that's forgotten that you now have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to make you new. He's also empowered you to live different. It's not that you living different dictates your salvation, but your salvation opens the door of opportunity for you to live different because you have the power of the Holy Spirit who has set us free from the law of sin and death. So Paul will say, yo, walk in the newness of life. You're new. Live new. Live the righteous life he's called you to. Paul said this in Ephesians. He's like, put on the new man. Stop wearing those old, dirty, you clothes, right? Put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. His provision for us in Christ is not just a justification. It's not just that he's imputed righteousness, but he's come to enable a life of righteousness through the spirit. Ephesians 5, 9, for the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Okay, so in summary. for right now you're wondering where we are in the sermon, just forget that question, okay? It's not irrelevant, okay? We're at this slide. That's where we are. Summary. In Christ, God has positioned us with righteous standing before him. Amen? This is good news. There's no boasting. And in Christ, God has enabled us for righteous living. It's not carrot on the stick stuff. Some of us are so too familiar with unrighteousness that we can't fathom a life of righteousness because unrighteousness is all we know. But you've got to expand your understanding of the power of the gospel. You're new. Paul will say, like, yo, the the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is in you. That's power to overcome unrighteousness. That's power to live different, to be different, to actually reflect the character of God in your life. So here's Paul. Remember Ephesians 6. In light of, trust me, this is all Paul that said most of this stuff. Paul's talking to Christians. And he's like, you have this theology of, of God's righteousness, how he's provided it for you. You're standing before him, your new life in him. But Paul's like, great. You, if, listen, if you want to be victorious in battle, coming to a Bible study is going to edify you. That's good. But this week, you have to put on the breastplate of righteousness. You've got to put it on. It's just not enough to like polish your armor and be like, yo, oh, look at my breastplate of righteousness. Check that thing out. <laughs> Hang it up. Shadow box that thing. You know what I'm saying? Well, LED light. Okay. Sorry. How awesome would it be if one of you LED lit a breastplate of righteousness in your room? Okay. Paul's like, you're missing the point if all you're doing is collecting theological artifacts and calling it maturity. Oftentimes, man, you ever find this gap between what you know and what you do? Man, the gap between my, my my knowledge of what I'm supposed to do and my obedience catching up to that. I don't need to learn anything new for a while. You know what I'm saying? I just need to catch up to what I know most of the time. And Paul's like, that's what you're being called to here, obedience, to put on the armor. Why is that? Notice this. Because, and here's why righteousness being put on in your life is so important. Righteousness is a breastplate to guard your heart. Your heart, the breastplate would cover your vitals, protect you from arrows, any sort of fatal wounds. Your heart. Um, Paul will say in Proverbs 4, he'll say, keep your heart. One translation says, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Most of my spiritual battles have to do with righteousness and my heart. And I want to I emphasize this. The enemy's not just like vaguely attacking your life. He's, not, he's attacking my finances. Okay, fine, okay. He's going for your heart. It's your heart that he's after. He somehow, when studying humanity knows that if he has your heart, it's all over. And also he knows that if God has your heart, it's all over. If your heart is filled and protected with the truth of righteousness, he'll flee. But if you're not armed with the provided righteousness of Jesus, he'll win. He'll win. The enemy seeks to do these two things, I think, with when it comes to this righteousness we just talked about. He seeks to draw our hearts away from the security of the gospel by making us overly aware of our sin and blinding us to our salvation. And or he will draw our hearts away from the power of the Holy Spirit. He's going to either mess with, and he, like, to be honest, it's usually like the same two tricks. When I was teaching youth ministry, I used to say things like this, and I'm still teaching and using the same thing, so I'll just say it. So, it's, we used to call it the cul de sac of condemnation. Anybody live on a cul de sac? A couple of you guys do. The cul de sac of condemnation is a road we go down to. It has one way out, okay? That's how cul-de-sacs work, I think. Actually, don't quiz me on cul-de-sacs. I'm not too smart. But the thing is, high schoolers didn't know, so I could use it. But now I'm with adults, so i got to update my analogies. But imagine this circle you go in spiritually. Temptation. God's given you the power of righteousness. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. And God is faithful. He's provided the way of escape. He's empowered you to be righteous, but you fall into temptation. And then what do you do? The enemy goes, okay, I got them there. Next step, condemnation. And, and there's a difference between condemnation and conviction. Conviction is good, by the way. Like, Don't hear me say you shouldn't feel repentant over your sin. Conviction, Condemnation says there's never going to be a way out. Conviction is an invitation to see your sin and come into a new way. And this is what the enemy does. He keeps us spinning in this circle of temptation and condemnation and no heart that's condemned has ever found its way back into a holy life. It's self-pity, God hates me, can't forgive myself. So I'm gonna go back to these pleasures because my, my soul is bitter and that just seems sweet right now. And it's just this circle, this loop he takes you on. And what's our defense? Let's put on the breastplate of righteousness. When the accuser comes opposing you, saying things about your sin, you know what you don't have to do? You have to go, you're wrong. I'm not a sinner. It's like, I know you just saw that. That's, I can explain. You don't have to do that. You don't have to justify yourself. You can put on the breastplate of righteousness and finish his sentence. You could say like John Newton, two things I'm sure of, I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a better savior. And so, yeah, it's true I've sinned, but it's even more true that Jesus has made me righteous. So I put on the breastplate of righteousness. How do we overcome the accusations? By the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And when he tempts you to sin, to draw your heart away from the love of God into the love, of, for, into the, a love for the things of this world, you hold up the breastplate of righteousness and you remind him that you are not his anymore. That you're new, and you have a new life in Christ that He's called and empowered you to walk in. As Paul would say, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, they don't belong there anymore. Present your life to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Amen. Amen. This is the provided righteousness of God for you and me. I'll invite the band out to close our final moment here of reflection. And rather than keep preaching and talking about these things, I just wanted to, hopefully you've been given enough in this Bible study to just now, like, like I'm going to get out of the way. It's just like you and the Lord now and just like talk to him. And um, I want to lead us in a time to reflect over a couple key things before we go back into our week. We have a short moment here, and then we're back into the week for the next seven days. A few key questions that I want you to sit before the Lord with right now. First, in in what ways has your heart fallen prey to the enemy's attacks? Maybe today you go, my heart has been drawn away from the love of God into a love for the things of this world. Maybe you go, today my heart is condemning me. Maybe my heart is... Become vulnerable to words of condemnation and accusation, and I've lost a confidence, a confidence in my identity in Jesus. Start there, evaluate that. In what ways has your heart? Just bring it to Jesus. Next question What specific sins do you need to confess to God in order to receive a fresh outpouring of grace and forgiveness? we confess our sins he's faithful and just because of what he's done through Jesus to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, from all unrighteousness what sins do you, do you what sins are, is the enemy having a heyday on in your life because you've, you've yet to bring them to the cross and lastly having been justified in Christ coming before God forgiven what patterns of unrighteousness do you need today to yield to his power and help. And this is just recognition. Applications another conversation. talking to someone, confessing that to someone else. But for now, let's just create a space. This is just can I just tell you something? If any of these questions resonate with you, you're in good company. There's not like a couple unrighteous and mostly righteous people in this room. There's humans who are weak who need strong grace. So let's just create a space where we can vulnerably as a family together in the fellowship of the struggle, we can come before God honestly here. We could ask for his help. Even if our heart condemns us, he's greater than our hearts and knows all things. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. And so Jesus, we just invite you here. Jehovah Sidkenu, you are the Lord God, our righteousness. Thank you, God, that you never expected us here in you to come before you with our own righteousness or lack thereof. We come to you freely because you clothe us in what we need. Lord, I pray you'd minister conviction. Help us not be a people that tolerate that which breaks your heart. Help us not be a people that use faulty judgment over our own sin. Help us be honest before you. Lord, I pray we'd be a people not just of holiness, but make us a people of confidence a humility that comes with that, knowing that our righteousness is from you, God. We just look to the cross today. Let's just take a minute between you and the Lord, take a minute to commune with him over these things.